0: To thoroughly equipped a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings books conferences bible studies etc to scripture our focus is 2 timothy 3 16 17 that all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so the man or woman of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work back to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. I am your host, Melba Toast, and I'm so glad you decided to join me as today's episode I think is going to be a good one. Now before we get into the book that we've been critiquing these last couple of weeks, I wanted to pose something I've been thinking about this last week, and that is, what is the difference between encouragement and flattery? So I had to look up the definitions of course. What is encouragement? The action of giving someone support, confidence or hope. Now it's flattery. Excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interest. Uh, I think there can be a fine line between encouragement and flattery. A line so fine, so thin that it may almost be invisible. Is there such a thing as encouragement without flattery today? To encourage women, must flattery be involved? If I'm not including flowery speech that espouses how strong, capable, and important you are, would it even be considered encouraging words in our society today? Could it be that even in the church, Today, and especially in women's ministry, the art of encouragement has become so inner-focused and self-loving that any word directing you away from yourself and to Christ is seen as a discouragement and a lack of love. Can this be so prevalent that true encouragement became a misnomer and flattery took its place? So I can't think of any instance in scripture that says something nice about us humans apart from Christ. There's no, you are great, you can do it, you're awesome, etc. kind of talk in scripture. Yet here's the thing, God does have something to say about flattery, and it's not good. <laughs> Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-three says, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. The Holy Spirit is saying here that it's better to rebuke someone than to flatter someone. This would get you excommunicated in most church uh, social spheres today. In fact, most Christians today would say to rebuke someone is unloving and would cause division. Scripture tells us that it is those who call themselves Christians yet are really following their own desires and by smooth talk and flattery draw people away from teachings in scripture. Romans 16, 17, 18. These are the people that actually cause division. When we read the epistles where Paul encourages the early church, it's always in regards to no longer doing certain things and behaving behaving a certain way. This implies that the early church had acted at times and were still acting in those sinful behaviors to which Paul had to direct them to Christ to remind them of the gospel. Encouragement in the Bible is always pointing you to Christ, the ultimate goal. Biblical encouragement is always tied to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are encouraged to trust the Father because he cannot lie, Numbers 23, 19, We're encouraged to love others because Christ loved us, 1 John 4, 19, and to rely on the Holy Spirit because he is the one who sanctifies, Romans 15, 16, and 19. The Bible encourages us to look to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then we are encouraged to obey scripture because of who they are. Now, flattery is different as its goals are different. Its goals are to point you to yourself and to benefit the flatterer. It takes real wisdom to know the difference. And as we get into chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Holly Gerst's book, You're Made for a God sized Dream, opening the door to all God has for you, ask yourself whether her words look like biblical encouragement or like flattery. Does she encourage you to look to Christ because from Him we receive wisdom and understanding, walk in a manner that is fully and pleasing to Him? that we bear fruit in every good work, are strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance? That's Colossians 1, to 9-12. Or does she point you to yourself? Because you can do it. You're special. You're strong and unique and are worthy. So let's find out. Chapters 9 title is Why Your Dream is Worth It. Holly gives us five reasons why we should go after our God-sized dream. Reason number one is because God doesn't have a plan B for you. Quote, God doesn't have a backup plan for your life. Either this dream happens through you or it doesn't happen at all. Yes, he can find another way to accomplish his purposes, but it won't be the same. You are the only one who can fulfill this dream. There is no one better than you to do it. End quote, page 156. So let's say the dream doesn't happen at all. Would she say that it was God's plan all along? And is this biblical to say that God could find another way to accomplish his purpose? If I am the only one who can fulfill this dream, how can there be another way to accomplish God's purposes except by me? I have a problem too with claiming that God can find another way. God is unchangeable and does all he desires he accomplishes his will even with you and me that's daniel's 4 335 job 23 13 if it be his will that we accomplish something he makes us do it there's no finding another way romans 9 18 to 22 another quote you are chosen by God for a particular purpose, and he promises to see it through to completion if you'll only say yes to what he's whispering in your heart and your heart alone. End quote. Page 157. Does God bringing this purpose to completion depend on us saying yes? Here's the thing. Remember Pharaoh who refused to let the Israelites go free? God had a purpose for him. The purpose was to make sure he refused to say yes to God. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Romans nine seventeen 17-18 Reason number two on why our dream is worth it. Because you will never feel closer to God than when you're pursuing a dream. Quote, we can find ourselves in the middle of a Christian life that's all about knowing. Yet somewhere within us, there remains a longing to be doing with God. We are created not just for belief, but also for action. When you put into practice what God has been whispering in your heart, it's the difference between talking about ice cream and sticking your spoon in the most delicious hot fudge sundae ever imaginable. There's simply no substitute for experience, end quote, page 158. I have a big problem with this claim. The Pharisees had asked Jesus what they needed to do to do the works of God. Jesus replied that we were to believe on the one whom God had sent. We are also told in scripture that we were created for good works. But she claims that to be, quote, doing with God... We must put into practice what God whispers in our heart. This is nowhere found in Scripture. Instead, we hear over and over about how we are sons and daughters of God because of Christ, Galatians 4, 4 4-7. And because we are in Christ and children of God, we obey His commandments. We were saved for this reason, to be reconciled to God, to believe and do the work of God, and to be given a new heart that causes us to obey His commandments. There is no talk of having to accomplish a dream to get closer to God. And the third reason why our dream is worth it is because dreams make you come alive. Quote, we get up, move through our day, and drift off to sleep wondering if there's more to life. And no matter how much we try to silence it, something within us says, don't be satisfied with this. We brush it off and tell ourselves we need to be content, but the longing remains. Then one day we find the courage to say yes to the whisper within us and what we're being asked to do. Quote, page 159. Scripture calls us to be content in whatever circumstances we go through. When we're not content, it is a sin and it comes from our lack of trust and faith in God. Contentment comes from knowing God and being satisfied in Him, regardless of our circumstances. So while we live the monotonous life of a housewife, mother, etc., we are content not because of what we're doing, but because we are in Christ, have Christ, and know God. If we know God, everything brings contentment. If we are in Scripture, we know that we are being asked to what we are being asked to do, and we obey because scripture is God's word giving us direction, and we are content in obeying his commandments. There is a longing within Christians, that's true, one that grows more and more as we mature, but the longing is not resolved by saying yes to the whisper within us and what we're asked to do, but will be fulfilled when we are finally with the one we long for, Christ. Quote, there's a myth in Christian culture today that says the promised land is only heaven. When I look through these chapters in scripture, I don't see that being true. Yes, the ultimate promised land is ours when we step from this life to the next, but I believe God has so much more for us right here and now, too. End quote, page 160. Now, I agree that the promised land as described in scripture is not only heaven, but it is not the accomplishment of our God-sized dream. All throughout this book, she compares accomplishing our God-sized dreams to arriving to the promised land. Let's look at just a couple of her mini statements about the promised land to see the way Holly uses it in her book. Quote, the God-sized dream in your heart right now isn't the only thing God has for you. It's simply the next thing. He may bring it into being and you'll get to set your feet firmly on that promised land for a season. End quote. Page 118. Quote, you don't have to find or achieve the one when it comes to God-sized dreams. Expecting that to happen can keep you in a holding pattern forever. Just see each new dream as another step on the journey, another piece of the promised land God is calling you to possess. End quote. Page 119. Another quote. Will you believe that God does have a promised land for you? I know that you will, that you do. You're not a grumbler. You're not a doubter. You are not someone who settles for safety. You, dear reader, are a Joshua or Caleb standing in the edge of the promised land, saying all that is good and saying, yes, this is possible. See Numbers 13. Then you take the steps of faith, fight the battles, and go the distance to take the possession of all God has for you. End quote, page 161. First, I just want to point out that you and I are not Joshua or Caleb standing on the edge of the promised land. You and I are the ones in our sin being fearful, afraid, and unable to get to the promised land. Joshua and Caleb are archetypes of Christ. He is the one who believes perfectly, fights the battle, and goes the distance to take possession. He conquered over sin and the devil. We're not told to do big things to fight battles and to conquer nations, but instead we're told to make disciples, baptizing and teaching them all that Jesus has commanded and to live a quiet life working with our hands. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. Now let's address this promised land issue. This is a doctrine taught by Rick Warren, whether it come from him or he just propagated it, I do not know. But I have heard him preach on reaching the promised land through our purpose. And really, it makes sense. Different gospel, different promises, different goals, different rewards. Basically, a different salvation. The purpose-driven gospel saves you from an ordinary existence for the promised land of success and achievement. But what is the real promised land in the Bible? The new heavens and the new earth. In Hebrews 11, the beautiful chapter known by theologians as the Hall of Faith, the writer gives us examples of men in the Old Testament whose actions of faith are recorded. In verses 13 to 16, we are told that each one sought a homeland, one that was better than any land on this earth, and they died not receiving what they promised. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." To compare the accomplishments of my desires to the fulfillment of Christ's rule over all things and the culmination of the new heavens and the new earth seem to belittle all that Christ has done and will do. Again, the purpose-driven dream doctrine makes it about us and what work we do for God versus the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and what they do and have done for us. Now there's a lot more I could get into here. The misuse of the promised land as the ultimate accomplishment of our dreams is a very dangerous twisting. This type of twisting of a biblical concept comes from reading ourselves into the text. Instead of Joshua being a type of Christ, it is taught that we are a type of Joshua to which God has given us promises, in this case a promised land to which we are to work towards. It also comes from a lack of understanding of the covenants given by God in Scripture, but that is a whole other subject to be studied at another time. For now, we should know that God has called us all to have faith in Christ, resulting in our glorification, should we remain in the gospel, and bringing us to the fulfillment of the new heavens and the new earth, as it told in Hebrews 11.13. Bottom line, the promised land is real, It's not an allegory for your dream reaching fulfillment. It is the city of God, ruled by Christ, that we will one day live in. Now, Chris Roswell does a great job critiquing the way Rick Warren uses the promised land in his sermon. To listen to Chris's critique, you can go to his website at Fighting for the Faith or Pirate Christian Media. And the title of that episode is Making promises for God that God never made. And the critique starts at 2301. and I've included the link down in the description below. All right, The fourth reason why your dream is worth it is because regret hurts more than risk. In this part of the chapter, she wants us to push past our inner desire for safety and survival. She warns us how our brain will reach for the flight or fight response during times of struggle in accomplishing our dreams. When that happens, we, quote, respond with, thank you for looking out for me, amygdala. I'm glad you showed me there could be danger here. And you're right. But the greatest danger of all is missing what God has for me. I serve a limitless God for whom all things are possible. So I'm moving ahead with him. If you move ahead and nothing works out as you planned, you still have what matters most, knowing you were faithful. Your role is obedience. God's role is results. End quote. Page 163. Now, Paul, too, gave us a warning in Scripture about missing out. He says, Now is the time for salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2. Now we must receive the gospel and believe. This is different from what Holly is saying. Holly tells us obedience to God by accomplishing the dream or chasing the dream is how we are faithful. And so what does it mean to be faithful? What does scripture say about how one can be faithful? The word faithful is a way of describing someone as loyal and trustworthy. So not surprisingly, it says very little on how we can be faithful, but an exorbitant amount of how God is faithful. This makes sense, understanding our sinful nature. But here is a little that I found, and I think it will help in dealing with Holly's claim that we are faithful when we, ha- when we have obeyed God's call to follow our dreams. All right, so in Nehemiah 9, 7 to 8, the Levites made the claim that God found Abraham's heart faithful before him. Genesis fifteen six says, Then he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. From this, we can see that Abraham's heart was fa- found faithful because he believed what God told him. And we are Abraham's seed and will have a heart that is faithful if we are in Christ, as told us in Galatians 3.29. Now, Psalms 119.81-88 reads, My soul longs for your salvation, I hope in your word. Now the NASB translate the word sure here as faithful. They persecute me with falsehood, help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Psalms 119:137 to 138 proclaim Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Notice that the psalmist writes how he loves and desires greatly to obey and keep God's law because it is sure, righteous, and faithful. Okay, bear with me here. We know that Abraham's heart was faithful because he believed God's word. The psalmist writes that God's commandments are faithful, sure, trustworthy, loyal, etc. And he has appointed his testimonies in righteousness and faithfulness. Now, under the, uh, under the covenant of the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 7, 9, we are told that the Lord our God is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Jesus says that those who love him and in our love we are loyal to him will keep his commandments John 14:15. If we love him we keep his word John 14:23. And when we keep his commandments we abide in his love John 15:10. So here is what we can conclude. One that We fail miserably at being faithful to God because of our sinful nature, yet God is still faithful to keep His promises, and He promised to send His faithful Son to be truly faithful for us. Two, in Christ, we are Abraham's seed when we believe and trust God's word, which leads to, number three, obeying God's commandments out of love for Christ. Therefore, we are faithful when we believe in Christ and obey his commands. These commands are found in scripture. Nowhere in scripture does Christ command us to fulfill a dream he has given us, but instead he commands us to love one another and in loving others we obey and love him. So here's my problem with making the claim that one is faithful to God when pursuing our dreams that it either places importance on pursuing the dream to be faithful, downplaying what God has called us to do in his word, or it adds to it, making one faithful by not only believing in Christ and doing what he commands, but also burdening us with having to chase our dreams to be faithful. All right, and finally, the fifth reason why our dream is worth it. Is because it's not really about you. Quote, even our God-sized dreams can become about us. When that happens, the enemy will try to tell you to stop. He'll whisper that you shouldn't be doing this at all because really it's all about you. Swat that thought away like you would stray a fly buzzing in your ear. You are human and you would never be able to pursue a worthwhile goal without it being about you at times. Of course, God wants part of the dream to be about you. The entire story of the gospel is about partnership, intimacy, and relationship. The best loves, the best marriages are not one-sided. They have give and take, shared joys, two hearts coming together in a way that benefits them both. End quote, page 164. Now, first, this seems weird to me, because the whole book is about us and our God-given dreams, but anyways there are two things here that i want to uh, address one she's right in the fact that all the things we do because of our sinful nature become about ourselves this is why without faith it's impossible to please god and our sinful nature our good deeds are filthy rags to god isaiah 64 6. this means even when we obey the ten commandments they are tainted with sin and selfishness we may not murder because we wish to protect ourselves, yet in our heart we sin because we hate others. We may not commit adultery physically for fear of what we may lose, but we sin in our hearts because we covet. So even in pursuing any dream or accomplishment we feel God is directing us toward, we in our sinful nature make it about ourselves. This is why we need Christ and our righteousness apart from our own. Two. She says the gospel is about partnership, intimacy, and relationship, but I can't see anywhere in scripture that the gospel is about partnership, unless she means the partnership between the Trinity in bringing about salvation for children who were destined for wrath. Does she mean that there's a partnership between us and Christ? Because scripture says that it is while we were his enemies that Christ came. Enemies are not in partnership. The Gospel is the good news that God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit accomplished salvation for those who were once dead in trespasses and sins (Ephesians 2, 1, whom He then makes them alive and gives them a new heart to believe and follow Christ Ezekiel What she says here, through her examples, implies that there is a work on our part that benefits God. Yet it is not our work that helps or benefits God in any way, but our love and our actions, when done in faith in Christ, benefit our neighbor. Quote, your God-sized dreams are not just about making his purposes and plans a reality. They are also about revealing his character through you. End quote, page 166. Again, nowhere in scripture are we told that the dream given to us by God, reveal His character through our accomplishments of it. Yet, in Scripture, we see God's character revealed through the Ten Commandments. It is when we obey the Ten Commandments and and love our neighbor in this way that they can see the character of a God. They can see that God is enough when we do not covet, that's the Tenth Commandment. They can see that our God is a provider when we do not steal the ninth commandment. They can see that our God does not lie when we tell the truth, the eighth commandment. They see that our God is faithful to his people when we are faithful to our spouse, the seventh commandment. They can see that God cherishes life when we cherish life and do not murder, the sixth commandment. They see that God is a God of order and honor when we honor our parents and all those in authority, the fifth commandment. They can see that God is all this and more when we do not use his name in vain, but speak truthfully about who he is and what he has done, the third commandment. We see that God is a jealous God and will not have us worship anything but him, the second commandment. And finally, they will see that God is one creator of all things when we worship and love only him. The first commandment. Chapter 10, God-sized dream stories. Since I wish to only discuss claims made by Holly, I will not be critiquing chapter 10 as they were stories told by other women of their experiences in pursuing their dream. So we're going to move on to chapter 11, commissioning you. No matter who you are, where you come from, regardless of race and ethnicity, Holly commissions you to go out and live your dream and make a difference. She says, quote, I commissioned them to go out into the world to live the dreams within their hearts, to make a difference in a new and powerful way, whatever they were called to be. And I want to do the same for you. And quote, page 198. Now, it might just be me. But isn't it a little presumptuous of her to commission anybody? When we have Christ, who's commissioned us to go out and make disciples, Matthew 28, 19-20, Holly calls us to make a difference while Christ calls us to make disciples. The calling to make a difference can be very subjective and can vary from person to person. But Christ's commission applies to all Christians as it is very specific and what it is asking us to do. For example, I can start a ministry for single mothers and supply what they need to live a comfortable life. That can make a difference in the world, and at least for that single mother, it makes a difference. But if I am not sharing the gospel and teaching them all that God has commanded, I am not making a disciple. So you see that making a disciple entails certain actions— that are the same for everyone who obeys the commission given to us by Christ. Quote, Your journey on this path is not by coincidence. You are here because God looked out over all of history and chose you for a particular time and purpose. You are in this generation, this time, and there will never be another you or another opportunity to do what only you are chosen to complete. Being chosen means you'll be given all you need. Being chosen means that success simply consists of obedience and God will do the rest. Being chosen means that you have a great big God as your partner every step of the way. End quote. Page 198. So let's look at these claims. The first being that we are chosen for a particular time and purpose. Understanding God's sovereignty brings us to the knowledge that God has a hand in all things, even our formation and birth. But that also includes unbelievers who are created by God as well. Yes, they too were created to live at this particular time and for a particular use. That's Romans 9, 20 to 21. So this does not separate Christians from non-Christians. As all people were created by God, when he chose to create them. And this is why the Bible speaks of those being chosen by God as being separated from all other created beings. What does being chosen mean? Basically, what is it that we are chosen for and why? This is where the chosen for a purpose differs from being chosen in Christ. All right, so I'm going to give you a list of um, Bible scripture to do a study on your own. That would be Deuteronomy 7, 6-11, Ezekiel 20, 5, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, Ephesians 1, 4-14, Colossians 3, 12-17, and 1 Peter 2, 9-10. All these verses will tell us why we're chosen to be God's possession made holy in Christ, equipped with the Holy Spirit for good works, those being God's commandments. In essence, we were not created for specific purposes or dreams given to us by God, but to be given a new heart in which we worship God in all that we do, and to teach others to do the same. This makes a difference. Because one has you looking for a purpose and a goal to please God, never really knowing if it was from God or not. While the other assures you that you please God when we believe in Christ, the chosen one. John 6 29, Hebrews 11 6. Holly says that we are called. Quote, we've often relegated the word calling to specifically spiritual vocations like being a pastor. But the reality is we all have unique tasks we're asked to do throughout our lives, and that, quote, we're We feel a longing for more in our lives because God's calling always pulls us upward and onward. He doesn't let us get complacent or too comfortable," end quote, page 199. I agree that we are called. Our callings are the very vocations that we are put in. In one of the greatest effects of the Reformation, one of the biggest doctrines that changed society was the doctrine of vocation. Martin Luther taught that everyone had a vocation. So in a way, Holly's correct here that we have tasks we are asked to do throughout our lives, but they are not necessarily unique. Our vocations are providentially given to us by God. Did God give you children? Then one of your vocations is one of parent. Did God give you a house? Then one of your vocations is homemaking. Do you have parents? Then one of your vocations is that of obedient child. Are you married? Then, in the vocation of wife, God has called you to submit and respect your husband, etc. Our vocations don't necessarily come about because of a desire we have in our heart, but are given to us providentially by God. The idea that we long for more because God is calling us to, to more can be deceiving, The Tenth Commandment instructs us not to covet, to be content with what we have and where we are. As Christians, all of our longings and desires are to be satisfied in Christ because it is in Him that we are made complete, Psalm 107.9, Psalm 17.15, Colossians 2.10. It is God's will that we are complacent and comfortable in Christ, not in anything worldly. So our longing for more should not be in regards to any job, work, or purpose that we accomplish in this world. Holly says then that we are needed. She goes on to explain using 1 Corinthians twelve 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 to 21 on how we are needed and belong to the body of Christ. Quote, we need each other. I need you. You need me. None of us can do it all, but we can all do and be our wonderful God chosen part. End quote. Page 202. I would agree with her on this, though it's not God who needs us, but our neighbor who needs our good works. But I would say that the God-sized dream doctrine places a burden on people instead of freeing them to give love to their neighbor. It emphasizes our dreams and desires instead of our neighbor's needs. The doctrine of vocation explains how we meet the needs of our neighbors day by day through what God has given us. This is very different from actively seeking out a desire placed in our heart. The focus is more on ourselves than on our neighbor. Holly says that we are loved, quote, you are loved as you are by a God who does not change. His love for you is based on who he is and who you are as his child, End quote, page 203. There is a very subtle problem with this claim. It is a very uplifting and pious sounding claim, one We can easily read over. So here's the thing. It's true that God does not change. And that is exactly why half of this claim isn't true. If we understand that we were children of wrath, destined for destruction, because we are in sin and rebellion against the loving God, we therefore understand that God doesn't love us as we are, but loves us so much more that he gives us Christ's righteousness and the Holy Spirit to change us. To claim that God loves us as we are is to claim he doesn't want to change us. God loves us so that he gave his law to show us that we were destined for hell. And he loved us so that he offers us Christ's righteousness to keep us from hell. But that's not all. He loves us so much that he seals us with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, who regenerates us and makes us a new man. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, John 3, 5 to 8, Titus 3, 5 to 6, and many, many other verses. He changes us. So why give us new hearts and grant us the Holy Spirit if we are loved just as we are? Our dream is going to change the world, says Miss Girth. We may not ever see what difference our dreams will make, but we are to continue in them by faith. Quote, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Hebrews eleven i I've always thought of those words in the context of believing in God, but that morning... It seemed the one who loved us whispered that part of faith is also about believing that our obedience makes a difference, even when we can't see the results, end quote, page two or six. She then explains Hebrews 11, one in this way, quote, sure of what we hope for, that what we do matters in the world, that our hearts out there really are encouraged, that the flicker of our shining can bring light to a life again, certain of what we do not see, that the bonds we make, the needs we meet, the prayers we lift up are as real as what's right in front of us, that the great I am is everywhere and in all we do in his name, end quote, page 206 to 207. The faith talked about in Hebrews chapter 11, it's not the same faith talked about here. A faith that is about believing that our obedience makes a difference is a faith that points us to us, what we do. Biblical faith is all about Christ and what he did and is doing. Again, Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith passage, describes the men of the Old Testament who had faith in God, that he would keep his promises, and therefore they obeyed him. And notice that it says that they did not receive those promises, That kind of puts a damper on the dream doctrine. For these men, God literally spoke audibly to them, giving them promises to which they did not see on this side of eternity. This is very different from Holly Girth's encouragement that we are going to make it. In the end, Holly says, we'll be glad we did it. Because to Holly, no one regrets following Christ at their deathbed, even a life that results and pain and suffering but there's a paradox holly says quote it's unlikely that you will have to literally die for your faith but you will have to die to yourself that's the paradox of a god-sized dream it makes you come alive and causes you to die to yourself all at once in quote page 209 maybe you'll think i'm splitting hairs here but the claim that the god-sized dream makes us come alive and causes you to die to yourself is a claim that should be given to the trinity For it was God, in baptism, who buried us with Christ and raised us from the dead, then gave us the Holy Spirit, who helps us carry our cross and die to self, so we may live for Christ. And nowhere in scripture does it say our dreams, God-given or not, do this to us. One more thought before I end. Matthew seven twenty one to 24. So what do you think, ladies? Should we be encouraged to go after a God-sized dream doing mighty works in God's name? Or should we go after Christ and what he in scripture has taught us to do? And remember what I asked in the beginning of this episode? Do you think Holly gave us encouragement or flattery? Who does she point us to? In the end, Who is the God-sized dream doctrine really focused on? Is it on Christ or on us and our accomplishments, even if we claim they are for Christ and from God? So until next time, I pray you are satisfied in Christ, living day by day, doing all things for the glory of God and longing for the day when we will receive the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, and reading about him and his promises in scripture. I pray you are in his word.